We are uh, actually finishing the Old Testament part of the whole shebang journey, which is amazing to me. It just kind of seems to happen quickly. It just seems to got here, get here uh, pretty quickly for me. Finishing up the Old Testament section, and for those of you who have been a part of this journey with us, we have identified that the Old Testament is really broken down into two main stories, both starting with the letter E. They're the first two tabs in your binder. It's the Exodus and the exile. Those are the two, the two main stories that the Old Testament is wrapped around. The Exodus is the story of the rise and prosperity of the people of God. They were rescued from slavery. That's the Exodus journey. They were brought into the promised land. They rose and rose and rose to prosperity. The exile is kind of the downward slope of the people of God, of the Israelites. The exile is the fall from prosperity. It's the Exodus story and the exile story. And half of the Old Testament is about each of those uh, letter E's. I actually want to read from Jeremiah chapter 16. Uh, You can turn there if you want, or you can just just listen here. I'm going to spend most of my time elsewhere, but I just want to quickly read here in Jeremiah 16 as I get started. It's a great summary of the Exodus exile part of the Old Testament. Verse 14, Jeremiah reads, However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, When men will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, in other words, the Exodus story, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of the countries where he had banished them. In other words, the exile story. It's right here. For I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. It just gives this, this picture right there of the exodus and the exile sections. If you were with us last, uh, last time, I talked about the message that God had for those who were in exile. The, 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 exit, the exile story is the people of God being removed from Jerusalem, being removed from their city, their place. That's where all of the spiritual center was for them. This was where the, the, the center of the will of God removed from that into Babylon. Babylon represents uh, the worldly stuff. And Babylon, for some, was a good experience. For some, was not. The worldly experience is not an absolutely bad experience. It's, it's, uh, it can be good and bad for different, in different uh, situations for different people. But the exile is from Jerusalem to Babylon. And last Last time I talked about the message that God had for those who were in exile. That God says, warning, 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 careful, warning, please be mindful of what's happening. Warning, warning, warning. And the instant we cross over from Jerusalem to Babylon, the instant we cross over there, God offers comfort. Isaiah chapter 40, the first word, comfort my people. God offers comfort Instantly, there is hope and there is comfort. That's where we left off last time. Hope and comfort are beautiful things, but they can only last so long. The hope and the comfort, they can only last so long because we need it to turn into something else. We need the hope to change. We need the hope. uh, uh, We need more than just hope while we're in the pit. We need to get out of the pit. Right? I mean, hope and comfort are beautiful things, but we want to get beyond that. Here in Jeremiah, he says, God says, I will restore them. What we're talking about today is is the post-exile experience. It is what happens after the exile. 
It is this process of restoration, going beyond hope and comfort. What does restoration look like? How can I get that? How can I do that in my journey? That's what we're going after this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, once again, I pray that you would translate what happens here in this room to our hearts, to our hearts that need restoration. Father, that, that it, it's metaphorical. It's, it's thousands of years old. It, it is so uh, distant it feels sometimes. This, this exile story, etc. God, I pray that you would laser beam it into our hearts right now that the restoration process that you launched beautifully as a part of your whole shebang story, God, that you would translate that into our hearts this morning. That you would, would come as you have said here, I will restore them. God, that we would be them. Come and restore us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to look at the story. It's, it's the last part of the Old Testament story, and I want to go to a book called Ezra. Ezra, I want to invite you now to turn to the book of Ezra if you brought your Bibles. If you go to the middle of your Bible, which is probably somewhere around Psalms, Go to the left. Ezra is a, is a few books prior to Psalms. Ezra is one of those books that you sometimes say, uh, is that really in the Bible? Yes, it is. It's, it's one of those books that really is in the Bible. It's kind of a lesser known, we spend a little less time in Ezra. It's actually referred to as Ezra Nehemiah. Ezra slash Nehemiah. It's the last two books in the Jewish history, which is part of the Old Testament. So the way the Old, I'm, I'm going to talk for a little bit while, I, while you find Ezra, because it might take you a few minutes. But, but the, the way the Old Testament works is it walks through the story, the history of the people of God, and that story ends up with the two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, which are really in the middle of the Old Testament. That part, that's confusing, because it's the whole story that ends with Ezra and Nehemiah, then it lays out all the writings of the Old Testament that happen throughout the story. Then we experience uh, Psalms and Proverbs and, and the prophets, and, et cetera, and we go through the rest of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is not chronological. And that, that can be confusing for us sometimes as we read this. This is why the whole shebang is, is such a helpful process to realize that, that this, this chronological piece has... Is, is, a, is about God telling a story and for us to learn that Psalms, that gets connected to David and the prophets. They get more connected to the exile. And so here we, we land on Ezra and Nehemiah. And I used to think that, that they were a couple. I used to think that... Uh, that, that was, it was, and Ezra, Ezra's actually a guy. Ezra's a poor guy. I mean, that was his name. But, uh, but they're not. They're two guys, Ezra and Nehemiah. We're jumping in on Ezra chapter 1, and hopefully I gave you enough time to find it. Okay. Ezra begins in this way. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Let me pause. We've been talking about the Babylonians. The Babylonians are the ones who exiled the people of God from Jerusalem into Babylon. And the reason we're talking about Persia now is that the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. And the Persians became the great power in the world at this time. So now Cyrus is the king of Persia. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, let me pause again. Last time I talked about uh, uh, from Jeremiah that, that God spoke through Jeremiah and said, you're going to be in exile not for two years, but for 70 years. 
It's going to be quite a while that you're in exile. And now we're 70 years later. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And what this proclamation is, saying to the Jewish people, saying, you can pack up your things and go back home. You can go back and restore, rebuild your city. Uh, and they even, it says later on in, in chapter 1, that the king was even gracious enough to say, here's some of your stuff. Here's some of the stuff that, that, that the Babylonians took from your temple. Here's some gold and some silver. You take it. Let this help you on your way. God moved through this king and said, I want to restore you. You can go back and rebuild. You, you can go back. And then what we see in chapter 2 is a list of those who returned. A list of a number of people from the, from the um, uh, different families. And the total is a little less than 50,000 people. So about 50,000 people went from the exiled area back to Jerusalem. And we see in verse 70 of chapter 2 the kind of people who went. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. The people who went back to Jerusalem were not the wealthy and the powerful. Those who were in Babylon, those who were in in the Persian cities who were doing well, they said, I'm okay here. I'm doing okay here. I'm gonna, the wealthy and the powerful, Jewish people, stayed. It was the priests, the Levites, the pastors, if you will. We all know lowlifes they are. The, uh, and the, the powerless that they are. They're the ones, and the poor, they're the ones who went back to Jerusalem. It was not the cream of the crop that went back to Jerusalem. It says here, verse 70, I just read it. The priests, the Levites, the singers... Everyone knows singers don't have any money. This, everyone knows singers are poor. It's, it's the poor, it's like drummers. You know, the, the drummers, they packed up and they all went back to Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, so so it, was, it, was the, it was not the cream of the crop who went back. 50,000, not the cream of the crop who went back. Kind of, I imagine that they shuffled back as they went back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the city of God, despite the story that we'll read and the rebuilding that occurred there, they never regained the power that they had previously. They never regained who they were as a city in terms of earthly standards. They, they never did. This is a significant part of the story. What we're going to look at today is what they built. They, they built three things when they got back to Jerusalem. We're going to look at the three things that they built and the significance of those three things and the order of the three things that they built. So these 50,000, they go back to Jerusalem. And then let's continue reading in chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. What's the first thing they built? The altar. The altar is this, it's actually a fairly large structure. The altar is where they would make a burnt offering 
to the Lord in response to their sin. These sacrifices, uh, these sacrificial offerings made on the altar were in response to, to cover up, to atone for their sin. Now, we don't have to have an altar here in this place. We don't have to make a burnt offering the way they did because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that we are celebrating this week and that we'll celebrate on Easter, that Jesus became the perfect, all-encompassing sacrifice, the perfect offering. No longer do we have to make an, a, 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 a sacrifice on an altar like this, but they did. Before they built a temple, before they did anything, this group went over there, and the first thing they did is build an altar. The first thing they did is build the thing that dealt with their sin. The first thing they did is deal with their sin. As we make our trip of restoration from Babylon to Jerusalem, from the, the earthly way to the, the will of God, from exile to restoration, as we make that journey, the first thing we need to deal with is our sin, is our brokenness, is our tendency to make decisions that are not in our best interest, that are not according to the plan and the character of our God. Some of you here in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who are a part of, of some kind of 12-step program or connected with some kind of addiction that you have and you continue to be in a place of, of knowing that you, you need to acknowledge the problem. You need to be able to admit the problem, identify the problem and, and the sin. And I don't, I don't point you out as separate. We all are addicted to something. And there is a place in each one of us where we need to identify, we need to be bold and strong enough to identify, here's the sin part. The restoration process requires us to be bold enough to identify and deal with the sin. What we do is we, we, we resist that so much. We're, we're going to play the game of comparison. We're going to compare ourselves with others and say, yeah, well, my situation, though, is not as bad as my neighbor. Now, you, you, know what, you know what he's dealing with. Did it? Well, obviously, I'm not dealing with that. And so then I get to reduce my sin. Or we play the pride game. And we just say, yeah, I know what I've got going on. And, and I believe God knows what I've got going on. But I'm not telling anybody. I can't, I can't let anyone know about this. Or we play the ignorance game. And the ignorance game is either saying, yeah, but I, I got a handle on this. I can, I can stop this. I can take care of this anytime. Or the ignorance game is a game of saying, if I just wait it out, it'll go away. If I just stay silent and wait it out, no one will get hurt. It will just go away. No, it doesn't. Some of you have parts of your stories, five, ten, 20 years old that are still holding you back from the full restoration that God has for you because you're not able to talk about it, not able to confess it to God, to others, to those that you've hurt. Let me just tell you, unless we come to the altar, unless we come to that place of dealing with our sin, we will not experience the restoration that our soul desires. 
Let me continue to read to find out what they built next. Verse 8. Still in chapter 3 of Ezra. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josedek. I'm actually just reading those again because I practiced. And the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began the work, appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. The second thing that they built was the temple. So the first thing they built, they came in and they built the altar, first thing. Second thing that they built was the temple. And the temple represents fellowship with God represents a restored connection and fellowship with God. Around here we embrace what we call the seven sonawats, and letter C is connect with God. It is a high, high value in terms of the, the, our relationship with God, in terms of the, the process of restoration, that we are to connect with a living God. So here, these uh, 50,000 folks went, went out went back into Jerusalem, 50,000. And their primary job was to rebuild the temple. They did the altar, and now they're about to rebuild the temple. In 15 years, 15 years, what they did is they laid the foundation for the temple. 50,000 people, 15 years, they laid the foundation of the temple. We're talking about the productivity of like ADOT trying to decide if they're going to build a freeway. (laughs) 15 years. And so what happened is God wanted to nudge His people. And how does God talk to His people in the Old Testament? He uses a group of people called, starts with a P, prophets. God, once again, He says, the, the difference between a priest and a prophet is that a priest talks to God on behalf of the people. A prophet talks to the people on behalf of God. And God had a message for the people saying, saying, I want you, I want to nudge you into building this temple. So he uses a prophet named Haggai. It's another one of those, pro- one of those words, that's not in the Bible, but it is. And Haggai is found at the end of your Old Testament. It's the third last book in the Old Testament. So turn with me, if you will, there, just to prove that you know where Haggai is. So the, the Old Testament, as I said, the Old Testament tells the story, tells the story, tells Ezra and Nehemiah, then it goes into all the writings that happen throughout the Old Testament journey. And the last three books in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the Italian prophet, those three, those three are the last books in the Old Testament, and here, this is kind of a, a good order for us, they all talk about the post-exile experience. Those are the only three prophets that talk about the post-exile experience. And they're all three at the very end. So that's kind of a, 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 an order that we, can, that we can get our minds around. So Haggai. Here uh, begins verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Again, I'm talking about the temple. I'm talking about God nudging the people of God to build the temple. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. The time has not yet come to decide on 202, whatever the the version we might see there. Okay, I'll stop with that, I promise. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. 
Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Let me read that again. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Because the the people of God, they took care of themselves nicely. And the temple of God was just a foundation. 15 years, they didn't build the thing up. Now, I don't believe as far as translating this to our journey, to our hearts today, I don't think this is about your house versus this building. I, I don't think that's what it is at all. I think what this is talking about is the investment of your time towards the things for you versus the things toward the will of God, towards the kingdom of God. In other words, it's natural for us to pour into the room in our lives for our own development and prosperity and, and, um, and wealth, etc., we put plenty of time and effort into, into that. And how much time and effort do we put toward the kingdom of God? Toward the things of God? Toward the, the spiritual things that God is doing in your lives, in, in, in your family's lives, in, in the lives of, uh, of others in our community? I believe this, this house metaphor is about our time and our effort in terms of expanding the kingdom of God. Let me continue here in verse 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Listen to this. Listen. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Does that sound familiar in terms of the American rat race? In terms, of, in terms of what we choose to invest ourselves in? We spend so much time and energy building our mini kingdoms when God is inviting us to be a part of the majestic kingdom of God. We're like peasants fighting over a morsel of food when God is inviting us to a buffet. Well, Haggai's words become effective. And he impacts and inspires the people of God to build the temple. It took him 15 years to build the foundation, four years to finish the whole temple. Four years after the words of Haggai, the thing, boom, it gets built up. Those who only knew this second temple, they celebrated, they loved it, they thought it was fantastic. We read in Isaiah and here in Haggai that those who were aware of the former temple, of the temple that Solomon had built, they were struggling with it because it was way smaller. It was way less majestic than what the temple had been in the past during the glory years, the glory days of the Israelite story, of the Israelite history. Here, jump to chapter 2, verse 3 here still in Haggai. Verse 3. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Jump to verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire, the desired of all nations will come. 
It's more prophecy towards the Messiah. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. This is an important message for those of you with a spiritual past. Now, for those of you who are just entering into faith, welcome, or, or, or seeking, or considering thrilled that you're here. This is an important message with regard to restoration for those of you who have a spiritual past, who have a part of your journey where at one point, wow, things were amazing between you and God. Think, wow, things were amazing at some other point. Maybe you moved here and, and it's difficult to, to lament the fact that man, things were so amazing at that church in Ohio or in Indiana or in Scottsdale or in California. And you guys, you guys had this amazing ventriloquism ministry and it was impacting the city and everyone was coming out and it was incredible. And we don't do any like, anything like that at Mountain Park or whatever. You need to get over that. Especially the ventriloquism thing. But you, you, really, you need to get over that. Listen to these words again. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Don't believe a lie that your best is gone. Don't believe a lie that you had it once and then anything in your future will be less than. God has a plan to fully restore you to something with even more glory than you've ever experienced. God's awesome promise of the restoration is that you would be filled with his glory. May you have hope towards even a brighter and amazing future. Some of you, I look out now, I know some of your stories. Some of you are at an amazing place. You're not done. There's even more for you. That's a beautiful thing. Okay, so the first thing that the people of God build when they get in, they build the altar. And the altar represents the place where sin is dealt with. First thing, we've got to deal with our sin, deal with what brought us into the exile. We've got to deal with it head on. Let's be men and women. And then the second thing is the temple. And the temple represents a restored fellowship with God, a connection with God. And uh, for the third thing, I want to go back to Nehemiah. I want to go back into uh, the book that follows Ezra. We were in Ezra. And uh, the, uh, the book right after that is the book of Nehemiah. It's often referred to as Ezra-Nehemiah. And that's, again, why I thought there were a couple. But they actually, it's actually one book. And it was divided up into two parts. And so they called the first part Ezra. They called the second part Nehemiah. Here beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. I love the name Hakaliah. It's, it sounds like a song. Hakaliah. It's just got a, a rhythm to it. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. This, these are the words of Nehemiah. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province. 
are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. The third and final thing that they built that we're going to look at here this morning is the building of the wall. And this was led by um, uh, a man named Nehemiah. Now, it's important to understand who Nehemiah is. Nehemiah, well, it says here in, uh, in, in verse 1, it says, While I was in the citadel of Susa, the citadel, the citadel. He might as well have said, while I was polishing my Mercedes. See, Nehemiah was one of those who was in exile who had done quite well. He was in Susa, which is the capital of, of Persia. Susa it was, was the same city where the story of Esther took place. And there were some people who were a part of the exile, some Jewish people who were part of the exile experience who did quite well. Daniel did quite well. He was quite successful. Esther became queen. Nehemiah was another one of those who had done quite well in exile as a Jewish person. It even says later on in verse 11 of chapter 1 that he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia. Persia, the most powerful empire that the world had known at the time. He was the cupbearer to the king. Not a servant, but a cupbearer meant the personal advisor to the king. He was at a very, very, very high place. And what he does is he says to the king, he says, I've just learned about what's happened in my, my, my city. The, the city of God, Jerusalem. And I'm asking permission, king, if I could go and help build the wall. And the king gives him permission to leave. And Nehemiah takes off, not with a huge, huge crew of people. He goes off and he enters in and he meets with the local officials and he tells them their plan. Jump to chapter 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. See, this is an important snapshot into the significance of the wall. Yes, the wall would provide protection. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what we assume is that you build a wall, it's for military protection. But if you don't have anything to protect... Who cares about having a wall? You see, in ancient cities, a wall was an enormous symbol of significance. That a, an unwalled city is a city of disgrace. There's nothing worth protecting there. A walled city is a city of honor. And so here's Nehemiah, a follower of God, saying, saying he's in Susa. And he's saying, God's city doesn't even have a wall. That's why he wept in chapter 1. There isn't even a wall. It is a disgrace. We need to go and build a wall around the city. God's place is not supposed to remain like that. So, Nehemiah leaves the safety and the luxury of Susa, his high fluting job. He leaves all that to go to the poverty and the danger and the heartbreak and the hard work of building a wall in the, in, among the rubble in Jerusalem. From safety 
to danger. It's what we talk about in here. There's a phrase that some, some of you don't like still. We're a safe place to visit and a dangerous place to stay. That there is a, it is a dangerous journey to surrender some of our earthly significance to go after spiritual significance. Nehemiah was experiencing plenty of earthly significance and prosperity and luxury and wealth. He gave that up to make a dangerous journey to say, I've been called by God to pour into some spiritual significance over here. Rebuilding the wall around the city. This is why our finances are such a big deal. Letter F of the Sanawats, freely give. If we're not willing to surrender at least part, the, the, the tithe is a 10%, at least part of the earthly wealth, of the earthly prosperity that we have, if we're not willing to surrender at least part of the earthly success, prosperity, towards the things of God, towards the kingdom of God, towards the work of God, moving in the hearts of people in this community around the world, if we're not willing to make that kind of dangerous sacrifice, we are not entering into full restoration that our soul so desperately longs for. That's not a works-based piece. That's the design of God saying, I'm inviting you into something into a dangerous journey of sacrifice. And that is the process that Nehemiah went through, and it's the process that we're invited into. I love how Nehemiah chooses to rebuild the wall. This is, this is awesome. Turn with me to chapter 4. He doesn't, just have, he doesn't just have to go through the work of building the wall. He's got incredible resistance, incredible opposition for this journey. Chapter 4, when Sanballat, Sanballat is the governor of Samaria, heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And then verse 3, Tobiah. Isn't Tobiah the name of the guy from uh, Arrested Development? Is it pretty close? Or to- Tobias, right? Yeah, yeah, very very similar. It's this fits here. Tobias, I'll call him, the Ammonite, who was at his side. Here's the sidekick saying, what are they building? If even a fox climbed on it, he would break down their wall of stones. I mean, it's like a cartoon. These two are going, yeah. And it's just kind of a a joke. It's kind of silly. But they're experiencing significant resistance while they're building this wall. Not only having to do the work of it, but they're getting resistance from those around them. Do not build that wall. We do not want that city to be a city of significance. And then this is the plan. This is beautiful. Verse 13, chapter 4. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. We see here and in chapter 3 that Nehemiah's plan for rebuilding the walls was saying, okay, you family, I want you to take this section. Family, I want you to be together and to take this section. 
Family, I want you to be together and take this section. That you would be together as families. How many times does our restoration process become a solo effort? Become all about me and my restoration. However you define family, and all of us can define family in some way. However you define family. What about bringing those that you're closest to along in the restoration process? Men, when's the last time you invited your wife, if you're married, to come and be a part of the restoration process? Even if she's, she's not a part of, the, of what brought you into exile, you bring her along and bring her along so that you can experience the fullness of God's glory together. When's the last time you invited your kids to come and be a part of the restoration process? Let me continue here. Verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Listen to this. And fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight for your family. This is at the very heart of your church of Mountain Park, that we are here to fight for families here in this church, here in this community. Some people don't like that word either. I, I had somebody say to me, we got enough fighting in our home. I don't want to talk about the church fighting for families. It says it right here. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Fight with them. Fight for them. Just this week, this week, I met with and, and talked with and prayed with people in our community who are experiencing physical abuse, who are experiencing uh, the results of affairs, of, of um, drug abuse, who are experiencing um, sui the suicidal attempts. Just in our community, this Weak. Don't think for a second, parents, that your kids are immune to the attacks of the enemy. Don't think that for a second that your, your kid goes to a Christian school. Your kid's got great friends. Don't think for a second that they're immune to this. Continue to fight. Fight for your son. Fight for your daughter. Don't think for a second, husbands and wives, that your spouse is immune to, this, to this, this stuff happening. That, oh, now they make good decisions. You pray for them. You continue to fight with them. Don't think for a second that you are immune to the destruction of, of your family. Each one of us is one mouse click, one conversation, one inappropriate conversation, one phone call away from the walls of restoration that we have been working so hard for, from them just, just crumbling down into a pile of rubble and us being sent back into exile. Don't coast and assume that restoration is just going to happen to you if you just give it enough time. Fight for your families. Fight for your wives, your husbands, your kids. Your parents, your brothers, your sisters. 
So let, let, me, let, me, let me wrap up and really kind of wrap up the Old Testament piece here. Here, here we have 50,000 people who went into Jerusalem and they built an altar, they built a temple, and they built a wall. But they were not powerful, they were not wealthy, and they were confused. The Jewish people in post-exile, when they went back to Jerusalem, they were confused because God did not show up the way they expected him to show up. God did not show up and reveal himself as being more powerful than the Assyrians, more powerful than the Babylonians, or more powerful than the Persians. They got back to, to Jerusalem, not because of the power of God, but because the Persian king, a foreign king, gave him the courtesy of going back. They went back with their tails between their legs. God did not respond for them, for the people of God, the way they expected Him. God did not show up and provide military power and provide powerful leadership and provide great wealth for the people of God. God did not show up the way they expected. And this went on for hundreds of years. And the Persians got replaced, uh, and eventually the Romans became in, in charge of the whole area. And still, the Jewish people in their own city of Jerusalem are confused. Where's God? And this set the stage for a most unexpected Messiah, a most unexpected Savior. The Jews were expecting a king, not a carpenter. They were expecting a crown of authority, not a crown of thorns. They were expecting a judge, not a cross. You see, God shows up in unexpected ways. And I think through the latter part of the Old Testament story, and as this moves into what we're celebrating this week, and we're going to be moving into the New Testament story, God says, okay, I'm going to redefine life. I'm going to redefine success. I'm going to redefine wealth and health and prosperity and restoration. I'm going to reset the whole deal through the person of Jesus Christ. And he's setting us up for that. He's saying it, it's not about what you thought it was. It's not about this earthly kingdom that you thought was going to be established. We're going to, we're going to first start off, with, we're going to start off with the altar that we're going to deal with our sin. We're going to deal with that part. And then we're going to deal with the temple and a restored relationship, a personal, intimate connection with a living God. And then we're going to talk about building a wall and having a significance that is not earthly significance, the Susa, Persia, earthly significance, but the spiritual, spiritual significance of building the wall around Jerusalem. We're going to redefine significance. God says, I'm going to redefine restoration. That's the story that we now live in. A beautiful, gracious God who has redefined restoration for you in your journey. And as we close, I want to pray. I consider it an honor and a privilege to pray with you for that restoration. Would you bow your heads with me? Gracious God, we come to you. We, we get to come and speak with you. The the designer, the teller of the whole shebang. 
the one who, who laid this story into place. And we are thankful, God, that you have redefined restoration. That we remain confused when we start to think that restoration means what the world says it is. That's how we stay in confusion. But God, you have come to say, even if those relationships that we're seeking aren't happening, even if that, that child that we're wanting isn't happening, even if these other things aren't happening, we can experience full restoration in you, God. You have redefined success. And God, here today, I pray that we would each experience more of that restoration here. God, would you come and redefine success for us here today? Some of us are, are spinning on the treadmill of the rat race. And we're, we're just not even sure. We're just, we're just to have holes in our pockets. Everything's just pouring out. God, would you just reset it for us, for our hearts, that this week as we enter into Holy Week and prepare for a celebration of the coming King, Father, would you allow us to, to, to experience you this week in a powerful, mighty, intimate, transforming, restorative way. We pray this in the amazing name of Jesus Christ. Amen.